Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the history of the ancient Near East can seem like staring down a deep, deep well of time, so deep that it gives one vertigo. It stretches back to at least 3500 BC. That is, I'll do the math for you, 5,522 years ago. And thinking about its 3,000 years of history, one begins to think not in terms of years, but in decades and centuries. Yet there were continuities amidst changed, not simply within those three plus millennia, but between then and now. For surely it would be impossible to imagine what 2022 would like be like without writing, families, getting right with higher powers, kings and rulers, laws and litigation, cities, and watering your garden. And all of these things can be found in the ancient Near East. With me to give a one-hour overview of 3,500 years is Amanda H. Podani. She is Professor Emeritus of History at California State Polytechnic University and author most recently of Weavers, Scribes, and Kings, A New History of the Ancient Near East. Amanda Podani, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So um, we've been exchanging emails about this, and I've admitted that I'm deeply intimidated by this. I could spend my happy place would be to spend the next 15 minutes talking about historiography and evidence because the rest of everything else is like, uh, it's alien. Uh, it's alien even to someone. I, I took a bunch of more classic classes than I had to. I like talking to classicists. They're always smarter than us, you know? I, but I realized that like classicists, historians in the ancient Near East are the theoretical physicists of history. You're just better than the rest of us. No, no, but, no, 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 no. Oh, no, you know, you know more languages. You have to talk to archaeologists. None of us really wants to talk to archaeologists. You have to pretend that you're Oh, your no, friend. I love talking to archaeologists. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Uh, but, um, but you're a historian. Yeah. So first of all, why? how is it that you're a historian rather than an archaeologist? I think we, this gets like down to like the fundamental of what history is and why is not this is not archaeology. Well, I actually wanted to be an archaeologist. I, oh, I, God, don't say that out loud. No, no I, didn't. <laughs> I, I I got all the way through my master's degree in, in sort of line to become an archaeologist because it was what I wanted to do when I was a kid. It was so you know fascinating. And in, as I started my program for my master's degree, I had to learn the ancient language of Akkadian and uh, the cuneiform script as sort of part of the preparation. And I started learning it and I thought, this is fabulous. You know, this was so interesting to be able to look at these ancient texts and make sense of them and to realize, which I hadn't realized before, that there's half a million of these cuneiform texts. It's not like there's, there's literally more than 500,000 of them in, in museums around the world. And there's only, you know, a few dozen people who read them regularly in the world. And to, to get a chance to work in a field of history that is that huge and that open. And, you know, I was just, I was thrilled. And then I got interested in historiography. And I would kind of love that same conversation you're talking about, of, of talking about the historiography and the documents. because Another really interesting aspect about this field is that whereas for most ancient history, what survives is what they wanted us to have, right? They carved it on stone 
or they, in the case of the Greeks, copied and recopied and recopied the classics. And those are the ones that really have come down. The Mesopotamians wrote on clay, on clay tablets. And you just, they just survive. They're in the ground. They're, there's, we have, as I say, half a million now. There's probably so many more still yet to be found. And that means we have all the things they didn't intend for us to have. We have letters, we have contracts, we have lists, just all the stuff that people write. And it's all there. And so for doing social history, for doing legal history, for doing all these types of history that one can you know, imagine, we have documentation that really doesn't exist for almost any other ancient cultures. So as a historian, it's a fabulous field to be in. And it's um, it's so true that we're going to be working on high and low in the course of the conversation. So just to give people, I mean, 99% of, uh, of everyone who listens to the podcast, and that includes me, isn't even clear on which king comes when, or which dynasty comes when, or which, God, which empire comes when even. Um, so we're going to talk about that. But we also I want we want to talk about these these extraordinary insights into everyday life that are possible because of the the ways in which that brickmakers and merchants with lousy customer service like Anasir that things can be preserved about them in a way that you can't find about ancient Athens. You know, it's really interesting how this has been preserved about the ancient Near East, but something, a relatively youthful civilization from 500 BC, (laughs) 3,000 years later, that stuff isn't preserved because it was written on something more fungible and prone to rot and decay. Yes, exactly. Of course, there are papyri, there's there's a whole catharology field for the classics, but yes, in classical Athens, no, you don't find the papyri there, that they they don't survive. And so, we yes, we have these opportunities to see into the lives and this is why I wrote this book um, and why it's called Weavers, Scribes and Kings. The kings are there but there's also all of these people who had professions that are normally invisible that aren't invisible to us. Yeah. Yeah it's a it's a great it's a very clever I could see immediately what you're doing with a title you're relativizing the kings by putting them third in the list. Yeah very nice. Um, So we, we were we you were pushing back at something I had said um, which I said in the intro about how far away it seems. Um, and it just seems so far away, Amanda. I mean, it's so far away. Shakespeare, the Ming emperors are contemporary. I mean, this is, if we, if you start thinking about this, you have to think about the millennia as a sort of unit of time yes, in, in civilization. Yeah, we do. Yeah. I'm, and that's, that's just crazy. To, I mean, I study early American history. Americans think of it as so distant from them. Yeah. And here we're talking about something that's 5,500 years ago. True. Okay. So let me give you a couple of sort of perspectives on this. One, yes, it's so long ago. And and we often think, as you say, that the, the Greeks were a long time ago. But Mesopotamian history, which started with the invention of writing around 3200, and I go up in this book through 323 BC with Alexander the Great. But um, that's 3,000 years. And we've only had 2,300 years since then. So it's actually more history in, is in the ancient Near East than all of the history since. So it's a, not only is it a long time ago, it's a very, very long lasting civilization. But this is the thing that really struck me actually when my son was born in 1996, same year that George Burns died, right? And I thought George Burns died at the age of 100. If my son lives to be 100, between them, they will have lived through 200 years of history. Now, if you go backwards from that and you put 100 year old people end to end, you only need 50 of them, 52, to get all the way to the beginnings of cities. Just 52 
or end to end. It's not that long. It just feels like a long time because we live in our, you know, hundred year um, lifespans at the moment. But it really isn't if you think about it, because humans have been on Earth for hundreds of thousands of years as Homo sapiens, and um, will hopefully continue to live on Earth for hundreds of thousands of years. At which point, the ancient beginning of cities and us, we're in the same little tiny, tiny um, part of that. We're not that far from them. We really aren't. Okay. What's well, I still, I'm st- I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I just did the, I was just doing the math when the, when the queen died, I realized she was born the same year. She was born when Calvin Coolidge was president, who was born when Ulysses S. Grant was president, who was born when James Monroe was president, who was almost killed at the battle of Trenton. Right. So that, okay. That's, that's, I, I can see how that works, mm-hmm. but it's still feel it's still a long time ago, and it's, it's such it's it's vast. I, I said it's also let's talk briefly about evidence. We've got these five hundred thousand clay texts, but what's um, the evidence is so promiscuous. It's so uh, I I said to you, it's I had this vision as I was reading your book of walking along a catwalk in a vast interior space. It was almost like a nightmare or a dream. And I was looking off the catwalk and I was seeing there's really bright spotlights illuminating something here and there. And sometimes it would illuminate the entire object, but very rarely. <laughs> sometimes it's only half. Sometimes the, most of these spotlights are illuminating a third, yet still, and and yet most of the warehouse is still dark. Most of the space is still dark. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting analogy. I like it. And because we do have, as you say, it's, it's wherever an archive is found. If there is an archive, we know so much because um, that archive is just whatever that person kept. And it may be a private archive. It may be a palace archive. If it's a palace archive, it may hold tens of thousands of documents. And so for those years of that palace, we know a great deal. Or for that one little person's house, we know a great deal. But everything around it, if an archive hasn't been found, is, is, as you say, like a big dark warehouse. It, it happened, but we can't necessarily reconstruct it. And one thing that I wanted to do with the book was make that clear, because I think often when we write histories, and this is not just history of, of the ancient Near East in general, we tend to pretend that we know everything equally, you know, that you read a history book and it reads as though, oh, we know all of this. And the author has just decided to focus on certain things. But because of the nature of the amount of evidence that is lost, not just, I mean, you think about family history, you have a list of names, you know nothing about them. Um, but it's even more true for the ancient Near East because of it being so long ago, that if we pretend we know everything equally, that is just false, it's not true. That we can talk deeply about individual people and 10 years later, we know nothing about that. The other thing that's striking is that, and again, comparison to modern history, if you think about American history, and you think about, well, you need to know a lot about Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and New York, you know, the big cities. I'm often struck by the fact that often when these archives are found in Mesopotamia, they are found not at the capital city necessarily. They're found in some little suburban town because that's where they actually were excavating. So, for example, Damascus. Damascus has been an important city forever. It still is an important city. There's a massive great modern city on the top. So you can't excavate 4,000 years ago in Damascus because it's way too far underneath all of the debris that's come since. So even though we know it was important, we have no excavated evidence or documents from ancient Damascus. 
but we have documents from a suburb, you know, where they where you can excavate. It's almost like in, in California, as if you were to be able to excavate Merced, California, but not Los Angeles in the future. And by looking at, you know, Merced's a nice town, but it, it, it gives you a sense of the culture, but you aren't in, in San Francisco or LA because they're just too big and there's too much on top of them. So it does, it does mean that these little spotlights that you talk about are fascinating and they, they sometimes sort of give us a, a sense of what's in that dark warehouse around them. But, but, uh, but we, don't, we don't have that sense of information. You begin in 3500. All, all the dates are BC, BC, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call, it, call it, 3500. Um, why there? Is that the earliest text that we have? It's actually a bit before the earliest texts. I decided the earliest texts are 3200, but they and they're found in a city called Uruk. But I didn't want to just go straight into writing because the city of Uruk existed before they were using writing. They were using um, various sort of administrative techniques to be able to keep track of objects, and, and those were sort of pre-writing, so that when writing started in 3200, you're entering... Uh, in the book, a culture you've already become familiar with from reading the first couple of chapters before writing, actually one chapter before writing. So I started a bit before just to kind of set the scene. So, and and they're writing in Akkadian in 3200? No, no. We, when they first start writing, we're actually not sure what language they were writing in because they were using pictograms and pictograms can be read in any language. But as soon as they started using them phonetically, they were using the language Sumerian and it's probable that in 3200 they were already speaking Sumerian. We just can't be 100% sure just because of the... So Uruk, what's the, let's go high and low. Okay. What's Uruk is a city, it's a kingdom, it's a, what is Uruk, empire, what, what is it? Okay, it's so before kings. We don't have any evidence of kings yet in 3200. So it was a city. Um, it was a big city for the time, the biggest city perhaps on earth, the, certainly the biggest city known from that period. Um, Archaeologists, of course, can always find new things, so we can't say it was definitely the biggest city on earth, but from what we know, it was. Um, estimates of between 25,000 and 40,000 people living there together, which is enormous for the ancient world. And up until this time, that's it, it's on a, just a completely different scale. Um, it has a major monumental center with monumental architecture devoted to the gods, apparently. So the big buildings that they were constructing in the center of Uruk were for the goddess Inanna and the goddess An. And um, these were uh, just, it, the size, the scale of this construction means that a lot of people worked together in order to, to build them, uh, to build these centers. This makes it a city. You have in earlier times, for example, at Çatalhöyük, which was thousands of years before this in what is now Turkey, about 8,000 people lived in one place, but there was no center. There was no monumental architecture. And so, you know, it's hard to exactly define a city. Certainly some people would say Çatalhöyük was a city, but with Uruk, you have this model of a city centered on a large monumental, almost an acropolis almost, with uh, people living around it and a city wall around the, around the outside. And that becomes sort of the model of cities from this time onwards. So do we have any idea of, of what everyday life was like? Are there records from 3200? 3100, which give us some evidence for that. Yes, we do. As soon as they did start using uh, proto-cuneiform, which is the writing system that they developed, they used it for lists. 
really it wasn't designed as and this is often a misconception about writing people think people invented writing to write stories or you know, for literature not at all they invented writing because they needed to have a memory aid they needed something to help them remember stuff and so they were writing down deliveries of barley um distribution of wool uh you know just stuff coming in stuff going out and so most of these tablets just list a number and a commodity and sometimes a name and you know tablets and tablets and tablets of these but i can give you a name of someone uh, there was a uh, there was a man whose name was kushim who we know and there's a number of them but kushim was the one i chose to focus on and kushim wa- worked in the beer warehouse at uh, uruk um, beer was always had for thousands of years before this apparently been a staple of society and um he was in control of the warehouse where the barley and the malt for making the beer were stored, where it was brought in, where it was sent out. He also was distributing beer as, as a finished product as well. And so we have 18 tablets that pertain to Cushim. We know that he was literate because he wrote on these tablets himself and that he was literate in the sense that he could use the, the cuneiform system. Um, he kept track of all these goods and the other thing we know about him is that his math wasn't absolutely great. As when, when scholars now go through and they do the addition, they can see that he he made some errors. Not all the time, but a few errors. His, he was a little bit, he struggled a bit with math. And if you want to read more about beer and ancient, uh, listen to more about beer and ancient society, our episode 253, we talked with John Arthur about the history of beer and the important value of nutritional value of beer, which I've always, I've always advocated for this, but particularly for if you're building ziggurats, and monumental architecture, uh, workers are all going to be fed with beer. Uh, so this, it's not surprising to see that beer is essential at the various early recorded, literally at the earliest recorded history, beer is essential. It is. It was It was part of the diet. They, they uh, And I think people think, oh, well, these people must have been drunk all the time. No, um, as far as we can tell, it was a very low alcohol beer that they drank. But as you say, it was nutritious. It was... Um, sterile unlike river water you know there was there were lots of advantages to do and they could, and hydrate and be able to hydrate right. it's just kind of important if you're building a, a large monumental architecture in the middle east um so then we'll move on to the early dynastic period yeah. uh this is 2900 2300 which i assume from the name only from the name and the table of contents i wrote kings question mark <laughs> so this is indeed the era that we start to talk about kings right so we don't think of kings as an innovation, but it was because once there were no kings and then there were. So what are our first recorded kings? Uh, who are they? And and more, more interestingly, why? Why kings? One of the most frustrating things about this early dynastic period is that right when they start having kings around 2900, they also stop writing as much as they wrote before. And they're certainly not writing at this point the kind of documents that would tell us why they suddenly, if it was sudden, decided to have kings. Probably wasn't sudden. There were priests in Uruk before, um, and there seemed to have been a position of called the En, who was a priest, sometimes called a priest king, before there were kingdoms, um, where his primary role was priest, but he was certainly some kind of a leader. So there seems to have been more probably of an evolution towards kingship. But once they had kings, um, we start seeing kings making royal inscriptions about 400 years after there were kings. You can see there were palaces, and palaces, clearly someone important is living in this palace. It's not a temple. It's a a residence for someone important, so kings, presumably. 
but they didn't think of using writing to record their names, to record anything about themselves for about 400 years. And so once we get royal inscriptions, kingship was already well established. And so there's this question of what happened in that intervening time that we don't really know. But one, so, is, one question, one question. So are kings throughout this period, do they always have a priestly function? They do. Um, yes. There is always a separate high priest or high priestess mm -hmm. very often of the mm -hmm. local um, deity. But the kings did have a, a religious role. But this brings up, oh gosh, I could go into so many things. <laughs> Religion wasn't a separate world for them. So they didn't, they didn't have a word for religion. They didn't think of the world as separated into secular and religious. Everything was religious because the gods were everywhere. And there was no way in their minds to separate the world of the gods from the world of people. The gods pervaded society. And so everybody in a way had a religious role in the sense that um, you, you were all interacting with the gods in some way. And so, but, but the kings did have a certain quality of divinity about them, even though we don't talk about them as gods for most of Mesopotamian history, unlike Egyptian kings. They didn't present themselves as gods. But after death, the um, early dynastic kings had statues set up for them of themselves in temples, and the statues would receive offerings. And, and I make the point in the book that at this point, I think for the average person, it would be hard to, for them to have made a dis clear distinction in their minds between dead god, dead kings who receive offerings and the gods who receive, receive offerings. I think there was a certain um, divinity to the kings at that point. But I should also point out that once they had kings, they also still had assemblies, city assemblies who advised the kings. They had viziers and they had queens who had a lot of power in the early dynastic period. And so it wasn't a sort of position of almighty kingship with the the sort of sense that he did everything. The king was part of a system that ruled. He was the top of that system, but he was not doing it alone. And they never pretended um, in, in uh, I'm going to catch myself there. <laughs> they present themselves in their royal inscriptions as though they do it all alone. Yes. But that's, I think, because they were writing to the gods in the royal inscriptions. And they wanted the gods to know all the things they'd done for them. They wanted the gods to know, I built this temple for you. I dedicated this object for you. But that said, there was clearly a whole structure of administration that existed to support the kings. It is, um, I, I, I use the term very carefully, that getting right with the gods is a continuous thread through this whole thing. I mean, a lot of time is spent. And, and money and inscriptions are spent doing that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, in a perfectly recognizable way. I think the reason is because in their perception of the universe, the gods created the universe for themselves. They created the cities for themselves. This is the gods' universe. Mm -hmm. The gods, and this is literally in several myths from from Mesopotamia. They believe that the gods got tired of doing the work. They didn't want to do all the farming. They didn't want to do all the food preparation. And so at some point, a god decided that they would create servants for themselves. And so they made humans. And this is why humans look like the gods in their perception and why humans have a certain, they, they believed it was divine blood that was used to, with clay to make the human beings. 
but that humans die and uh, gods don't. But that their its sense was they are here just to serve the gods. That's that's their role in life. And so yeah, everything was about pleasing the gods because you want that's that's what you're told from birth. That's why you're here. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing there's every city eventually multiple cities have kings. This is not one king over several cities. There's we haven't gotten to that point yet. No, exactly. In the early dynastic period, there were um, major cities with a king, and each city had uh, a surrounding area that we refer to them as city-states. Uh, and these city-states were sometimes allied with one another. They were sometimes at war with one another. There would be confederations of them. This is the time, the early dynastic period, where they developed diplomacy. Um, and we know we hear about envoys traveling from one city to another, um, kings sending one another gifts, queens sending one another gifts. There was a lot going on at that time between these city-states, yeah. About how big are these cities? I mean, I'm I, I, sorry to ask you a question No, like no, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to generalize. Um, yeah. This was a very urban time. The cities were quite big, and it's surprising what percentage they estimate of the population lived in cities versus in the countryside. I don't remember off the top of my head what yeah. that percentage is, but it's, it's a surprisingly urban time. Um, but but I, that also does point out the fact that I, I, that to in when you invent the city, you also invent the countryside. <laughs> you know, yeah. I see what you mean. Yes. yes. Yeah, and so that there's there's lots of uh, so there are lots of there are farms of necessity being created, and um, these this, these inscriptions, writing is being used to measure the barley that people are sending in, mm -hmm. saying, "Hey, where did the this isn't as big as it was last year." You know what's what's going on? There is no drought and things like that. So there there are there are this is something I guess that we might never know about is what life is like on the on the on the near eastern farm. So in some eras a little bit, but you're right. The farmers generally weren't literate. Um, they wouldn't have been keeping. And and the other thing is, then in the nature of excavation, in the Middle East, you tend the 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 occupation mounds called tells. Are the places where archaeologists generally excavate because if you see a tell in a flat landscape you know people have lived there for thousands of years or did live there for thousands of years a farm doesn't leave a tell so all across the middle east where there were farms in ancient times there's probably remains somewhere in the ground but we, you just wouldn't know to look there because there's nothing sticking up out of the ground saying there was a farm here so um so yes we don't have excavated farms and so we don't know much about the farmers lives what we know about is what they kept track of. And the people who were using writing in the early dynastic period were the temples and the palaces. And so when things came from the farms into the temple or came into the palace, there's a record of them. But there's not much in the way of records of, of what um, daily life would have been like. So if we move on to your low question. Which... From the history from the bottom up, that's what we're thinking here. Bottom up, exactly. So in the early dynastic period where we see people who are not on the top, it tends to be people who worked for the palace or the temple mm -hmm. as they are provided with rations. Um, and the the one that, that in, in just thinking of an example, are the weavers. Who, oh, I'm glad you picked, I, thought, I hoped you would pick that one. Yeah, <laughs> because there was a, um, a palace in the city-state of Lagash. Confusingly, the capital of the city-state of Lagash was a city called Girsu, not Lagash itself. <laughs> but in Girsu, when they excavated, the, um, the palace they found was not the king's palace, but the queen's palace. And the queen had her own palace. She had her own estate. She had her own workers. She had oh, hundreds of 
hectares of land that she controlled. And um, her workforce included a lot of weaving women and also people who did dyeing, people who did spinning. And these weaving women, because they were paid, uh, they were paid in food, um, they, we know their names and we know that the, the, there are lists of the teams of workers. And so it's possible to see these women over, a, I think it's an eight-year period where the documents survive, working their way up in the hierarchy of weaving women. And so, for example, there's a woman whose name is Zoom, um, who when you first encounter her, she was one of a team of 20 women doing weaving. And she was at the top of the list. And they always listed people hierarchically in these ration lists. And so she was the most important of the weaving women in her group. Uh, and her supervisor was a man. And then over time, these, they, they, the queen started having more and more of these teams of uh, weavers. And Zoom ends up being a supervisor. So she takes on a supervising position of an, a new team of weaving women. And those weaving women, 20 new women coming in, and they seem to have been possibly captives from a war because most weaving women were listed as having children who they were supporting and there was extra food for the children. And these 20 new women, as they, they describe them, none of them are listed as having children. And so it's possible that they were brought in as, as captives. And then she is taking, you know, um, controlling the, the wool that comes in the requirements for these textiles that they're producing. And textiles were essential to the Mesopotamian economy. They were their main export. And so you have a temple or um, a palace, as in the case of Zum, uh, her workspace, where textiles were being produced on a grand scale by hundreds of women. Well, you, you, you talk about the king of Ebla, who had between 80 and 136,000 sheep. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a lot of wool. Uh, it is. Uh, for one guy to be controlling, and uh, and I, I we presume there are more sheep in in Ebla than the kings. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, Ebla is also an early dynastic kingdom. Yeah. It's in Syria, and actually, you say the king in in Ebla. There seems to have been really a collaboration between the king and the queen, in that they were considered a ruling couple. Mm -hmm. um, the king king's name was. I mean, it's a patriarchal society. He was the dominant one, but but he wasn't considered to be truly king until he had a queen who served with him. And where are they exporting to? Somewhere colder? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Um, because everyone has wool. Uh, yeah. So the surprising thing is that Mesopotamian um, textiles were considered beautiful enough or something enough that they were desired by people in other regions, even though they too made their own textiles. It's, it's really fascinating because later, when we get to um, the old Assyrian period, they were exporting a lot of textiles to what is now Turkey, where they had sheep too. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, but I often think about, if you think about like Navajo rugs, or you think about um, Chinese silk or Persian rugs, they are so distinctive that people want them, even if they make rugs in their own country, even if they, you know, th there's, there's a desire for that beauty of the, of the object. And clearly Mesopotamian textiles were in that category. They were extraordinary. And therefore people wanted them for the artistry not just to keep themselves warm. Oh, so moving on, we move to the Akkadian and Ur three periods, yes. twenty three hundred to two thousand BC. That's very just three hundred years, just a three hundred year focus. I also have to say that this is where you people need to do a better job in the marketing department. Ur three, I read I anything like name and then like a. I, I immediately I shut down. 
I'm sorry. It's okay. But we, we need to come up with a better, we need to come up with a better moniker than that. Oh my gosh, we need, the, the whole periodization of ancient areas in history is a mess. Yeah. But, um, but it's what it is because that's how it developed. And it's it, <laughs> what the Egyptians have it, so Egypt, Egyptologists have it, you know, one dynasty after oh, another. Very nice. Old kingdom, middle kingdom, new kingdom. Yeah, so easy. So yeah, easy. No, we don't have that. And I can't change it. No, no <laughs> so. I guess you're not. So Akkadian, that's the, we've, we've mentioned Akkadian as a, um, as a writing system or in a language, correct? I mean, this language, is language, language, language. Yes. Cuneiform remains remarkably the same. Right? Yes, no. Um, cuneiform script continued for three thousand years. It's more pretty than 3, good. Years. Mm. Very good, but it does change dramatically in its look um, yeah. over time. So it no longer looks like pictures by this time. Right. It's completely abstract. Uh, nobody looking at a cuneiform sign in the Akkadian period would recognize the picture that was behind it. Um, and also in the Akkadian period, I mentioned that Sumerian was the dominant language in the early dynastic mm -hmm. period. In the Akkadian period, um, Akkadian, which is an unrelated language, becomes the dominant language. And are these, what are they, are they related to any sort of language groupings that we would recognize? Or are they? Akkadian is, yes. Yeah. And is it? It's, a, it's Semitic. Semitic. It's Semitic. So these are yeah, Semitic. So, is Sumerian Semitic or is it something no. we don't know what it, it's not? It's an, it's called an isolate. It's an unrelated language to anything that okay. came after. Um, we can understand it, but it's uh, it's not got any descendants. Whereas Akkadian is related to Arabic, it's related to Hebrew, it's related to Aramaic, and it was the first of the of the cuneiform languages to be deciphered um, because, because of, that. of that, because okay. they could figure out that it was Semitic. But yes, Sargon was from central Mesopotamia which is where Akkadian had always been spoken. Sumerian had always been spoken in the South. But a lot of people had been bilingual all the way along because there's so much interaction between these two groups mm -hmm. that it's not as though the Akkadians hated the Sumerians or anything like that. It's just that these were regions that had different local so languages. You just mentioned Sargon. This is, is, mm -hmm. he, he is sort of the, the big ticket act of this period. Yes, he's the big name. And he, get, he created what is arguably the first empire, which is why we get this change from early dynastic to the Akkadian period, because unlike the kings who'd come before him, he had this goal in mind of uniting what he called the land, the entire region from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, which is what they basically thought of as, as their, they almost thought of it as the whole world. They, they knew there was land beyond it, but that was the big important part to them. And um, so he was the second king to think of doing this, but he was the first king to do it, to actually fight send his armies out and fight from the Mediterranean to the Gulf and to bring it under one administration or to attempt to it was it was the first empire but it wasn't particularly successful in that they didn't really know how to do it yet so um, it survived through three generations his uh, his generation his son and his grandson and then it fell apart so it wasn't a very long-lasting empire and and Sargon uh, so known to us was and known to his um, known to those who came after him, but not that much evidence of him from his own period. That's the that no. really that really shocked me. Yeah, no, it's really it's surprising that he would, became this legend in Mesopotamian culture that they and they did write legends about him. There was a, he had a legendary birth and all kinds of stuff, but from his own time, there are no royal inscriptions of Sargon's in which he describes what he did that survived from his time. But what is wonderful for us is that, and again, 
I love scribes. Scribes are so great because they were the ones who were literate. They went to school. They, um, you know, we, we have their exercises and so forth. And one of the things they did was they would copy royal inscriptions of earlier kings. So we have inscriptions by Sargon, not from his own time, but from the scribal schools where the scribes were copying inscriptions. And they would even say this is copied from a statue with such and such on it. And then so on the clay tablet from hundreds of years later, we have a copy of Sargon's inscription. We just don't have the original. And so, yes, he's surprisingly not that well known from material from his own time. If it hadn't been for the scribes copying those things down, we would know very little about Sargon. And this is the period, am I right? I'm trying to keep all these notes in order that um, people start that monumental architecture turns towards building ziggurats. Not quite. That's the Earth three period, which is after Earth Sargon. I put them in the same. You put them in the same, same chunk. Time. Yes. Okay. Yes, because same same three hundred years. Um, but let's, yes, talk, after, let's talk about that because people know ziggurat. You know, yeah, yeah. rhymes with cigarette. Mm. <laughs> mm, <a little> bit. <laughs> um, uh, the yes. So after Sargon, the next major empire was uh, based in the city of Ur in southern Mesopotamia. And it was called the third dynasty of Ur because there was a first and a second dynasty. And so we call it the Ur three period. And I am so sorry. That is just what we call it. <laughs> but um, but the, the first king of the, of the Ur three period, whose name was Ornama, was a builder. I mean, he was someone who wanted to really put his stamp on the landscape with these many, many monumental buildings. And one of the things that he, I don't know if he designed it, but he, it, the earliest ones were built in his time was a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is a big, solid pile of mud brick um, on, in several levels. So it's stepped. And some of them had three steps and some of them had four. Later, ziggurats had as many as seven steps going up to a point. So they're pyramidal shaped, but with these big steps. And they are just solid. There is nothing inside. It's not that they're a building that you could walk into. You climbed up the outside of the ziggurat and on the top there was a shrine but it's really just a gigantic platform for the shrine on the top. Mm -hmm. um, so this is uh, not like, in other words, not like an Egyptian pyramid or no. come to that a Mayan pyramid, I think as a, they have a central chamber. Um, right. But, and do we know, but there's no, there's no one explains why they're building these. In the, in the... They didn't know. And it, it is a question. I think the a lot of people feel that it's because they wanted to be closer to the gods. They had no idea, of course, how big the universe is. And they saw the sky and the sky and you go up on a tall platform, you're closer to the sky. And the gods, many of the gods were in the sky. Um, it may also have had to do with um, astronomy because there was uh, the fascination with the night sky because it was where the gods could be seen, where you could see the planets moving around and you could see the constellations. And they believed that the gods left messages in the sky. And for all of Mesopotamian history, that was a very important way of learning what the gods wanted, was to look at the night sky. And on a ziggurat, you have this uninterrupted view, you know, the, the whole night sky. So that may have had something to do with it. But no, they never, they never wrote down why. why? Um, but to have... make monumental ziggurats, you need mm -hmm. a, a stupendous number of bricks. Yes. And you need lots of, therefore, brick makers. So... Because it's the Middle East, you don't have to fire the bricks. You just, well, or yes. you could, but you don't have to. Right, uh, right. The, what they did was um, the, the the big ziggurat in Ur, which you can still see because it was when they excavated there in the twenties. 
there was still plenty of the ziggurat still standing and then Saddam Hussein had it reconstructed and so there is something to see there. Um, they estimate that there's 8 million bricks in the first level of the ziggurat. And you're right, every one of those bricks had to be made. They they made most of it out of unbaked bricks, which had been dried in the sun, mm -hmm. but the eight feet on the outside, the sort of shell, is baked brick. Okay. And that's, so that's still a lot of baked bricks, even though it's it's only an eight foot um, sort of covering of the of the sun dried bricks. There was still a lot of bricks to bricks to be baked. And and one of the people that I I talk about in the book is a, a brick maker from this period because we know quite a bit about them. We know that they were organized in teams of 10 and then you would have te teams of 10 that were grouped together under supervisors. We know that they were provided with food. They were provided with um, beer. wages and beer, yes, of course, um, that they were not slaves for the most part, that they were called up for what we call corvée labor, where they were um, hired by the, the um, they would, brought in by the king to do this kind of work, and that they would have made as many as 240 bricks a day. A single brickmaker would have been required to do that. Just a huge amount of really hard physical labor to produce those bricks. Hmm. Um, we should talk about slavery. Um, yes. Is this the first period in which uh, do slaves show up in records from the earliest period, or is this the f about the first time that they show up? And who are No, there was, yeah, there was always a sign for slaves. Um, yeah, such good questions. The there was they in cuneiform there is a um, a sign for slave that you find very early, but the interesting thing is what we translate as slave is a lot of different things in Mesopotamia. So they had a term, um, the term slave they would use not just for actual slaves, but they would also call themselves slaves of the king, and someone who was lower than someone else would refer to himself as the slave of that person or herself as the slave of that person. So sometimes it's hard to discern, are they using the term slave in the meaning that we think of it, or are they using it as a, a, a description of subordination to someone else? That said, even with the term slave, some of them were prisoners of war, some of them were purchased, some of them were um, indebted. And so if you got into debt too deeply, you could... Uh, become basically a slave of your creditor until you had paid off your debt and then you would be freed again. And so there were these different types of, of slavery that existed side by side. If you were an indebted slave, you couldn't be sold. So someone who was in that situation was not ever going to be sold to someone else. Um, if you were a captive, generally you were enslaved by one of the great institutions, either the temple or the palace, and they would have uh, a lot of people who've been brought in as captives, POWs, who are not POWs. Um, well, they, because they were enslaved, POW doesn't really work as a term. But they were they were, had been enslaved as captives as a result of war, and they were working for the temple. But again, they generally weren't sold. And then other people would sell their children even into slavery, or they would sell themselves into slavery. There's all of this this strange sort of parts to slavery. But as far as we can tell there were no slave markets. So the whole slavery system did not depend on a market where slaves were sold. So- That's really curious. It is interesting. I mean, I, I almost, I almost, I, I mean, sounds like if you're, if you're buying and selling, it's a market. So why aren't, why aren't, why aren't there actual open markets, public markets? It's very, it's a very yeah. curious thing. No, 
it was done individually. And often if someone was going to buy slaves, they would leave Mesopotamia to do it. They would go off into some distant region in the mountains nearby, and they would purchase slaves there and bring them back. Um, and a lot of people, of course, then were born into slavery, because once you have slaves, they, there were people being born as slaves. But it was not, one thing's different from Rome, though, for example. Ancient Rome, the economy was really dependent on slaves. That was not true in Mesopotamia. It was not a slave-dependent economy. Hmm. Really? Yeah, the uh, farming was almost entirely, or throughout, farming was done by tenant farmers, by landowners, but not by slaves. But so we can imagine that it's these construction projects that are, are using, are, but not all of them needed either. No, no, there's not much evidence for slaves being involved in construction projects. Those are mostly free men and women, interestingly, who were called up, just like you'd be called up for a military service. Like a corvée, uh, like a, the sort of okay. a corvée labor sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are slaves being used for then? Largely in the temples, they were used for things like um, sometimes you find them as weavers, sometimes you find them as millers um, doing work like that. Sometimes you would have a domestic slave that someone would have in their household. Uh, they, they were not a, a block of people who were working in this particular way that uh, that we think of when you think of like Roman Latifundia, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on because we're all. We're, yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. No, I'm 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 asking the questions. I'm I'm to blame. So we're only like uh, fifteen hundred years in. Uh, so uh, we're now to the uh, the early second millennium, which you have, and then old Babylon, which are almost co. We can lump those two together. Coincide, coincide? Yes. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. Those roughly from two thousand to fifteen fifteen fifty, unusually precise. Actually, it's really more 1595, which is even more precise. <laughs> more precise than that. But I pushed it forward to 1550 to include a couple of things. But um, but yeah, no, this period then, it's uh, a time, it starts out with, again, going back to small kingdoms. There's a brief period when Hammurabi managed to unite a lot of it. There it is, the, the second name that people will recognize. Right. As you say in the book, if there's going to be like two pages devoted to the ancient Near East, one of them will be about... Hammurabi, but go on. Sorry. Yes, and then and then it's splintered again. So so we ha we have um, most of this period, most of the old Babylonian period, um, the early second millennium, is territorial states, but not a, a giant empire. And you mentioned Hammurabi. The reason people think they that Hammurabi is important is that they think he invented law, but he didn't. And this is just one of the great misconceptions. He was not the first lawgiver or Nama who, who constructed the ziggurats, as far as we know, is the earliest king to promulgate laws. Um, well, well, so, well, there were no laws before Ornama. There must have been laws before Ornama. No, you know what? The judicial system didn't depend on laws, even after they'd come up with laws. They had a beautifully functioning judicial system uh, from very early on with judges and witnesses and oaths and searching for evidence. But written law was not important. People knew what was and wasn't legal. You didn't have to, you know, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't bribe. Those things, you didn't need a law code to tell you that. And so, in fact, even when these laws were written, not just Ornamas, but Hammurabi's laws as well, when you look at court cases, they didn't consult the laws. The judges don't say, and I checked against Hammurabi's law and I found this was illegal. Not at all. They were they were um, used as legal precedents. I mean, no, they were collections of legal precedents. So when you have what we sometimes refer to as a code of law, it isn't a code. It's not an attempt to be universally comprehensive. It was a collection of precedents that had been made in, in uh, court before. But um, 
the the idea that they're sort of going and consulting the law codes and determining what was and wasn't legal. They don't seem to have done that at all. And uh, this gets us to an earlier uh, podcast with Fernanda Peary over the, uh, basically in which I was quite obsessed, well, in her book is full of it, is the conjunction of sacrality and the law. Uh, hmm. And here this is, I mean, and here we see it. I mean, this is what she's, she's talking about Tibet, where she's done field research hmm. as a, an anthropologist and a lawyer. But um, but she's also talking about Mesopotamia, and here you see also oath taking, you know, right. the fact that this is about, uh, you know, that you should know these things uh, are, are should be deep in your conscience. You don't need to have it written down. But then when right. you do write it down, you're writing into previous precedents. You're not like establishing, oh, everyone already knows you shouldn't murder. Just it's a it's a question of interest. What people have done previously in such cases. Um, right, right. This, but this is all wound up once again. This idea of of the all pervasive religious, um, the religious views of the Near Eastern people. Well, oaths especially, because where we think of an oath as being, yeah, I swear, you know, hand, hand on the Bible or whatever. But people, I think, when they perjure themselves, they think, oh, I might get in trouble with the court system. In Mesopotamia, if you say, I swear to Shamash that this is true, you are saying, Shamash, kill me if this is not true. And you absolutely believe that he will. And so what an oath means, if someone is willing to swear an oath, it means they're absolutely telling the truth. And if they are not willing to swear an oath, it means that they won't because they know they wouldn't be telling the truth. And so the oath itself becomes a means of getting at the truth of a case. Because, and they say this in the court cases, if they will say so-and-so um, rejected the oath, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take an oath. And that means that they wouldn't take the oath because they would have been lying. And that makes it possible for the judges then to determine the, the, what was going on in the case based on the willingness or, or unwillingness to take an oath, which is really interesting. You, just, you described some of the court cases. One very interesting thing is, <coughs> excuse me, is that um, there were no lawyers. No, no, people represented themselves. Um, so, and there's no jury. No, but there was normally a panel of judges. Okay. And so the panel of judges in most cities was seven judges, and uh, it was a majority decision. Um, in Uma, where I wrote about a couple of court cases, there was just one judge deciding a case in those ones. But for the most part, it was more than one. It was a college of judges, they would say. Um, uh, sometimes it's translated as. And so it was, it was a surprisingly fair system. There were ways to prevent the judges from accepting bribes, there were punishments on the judges if they accepted bribes. Um, there was, uh, they would, the judges would allow someone who had a case to go off and find witnesses. They would give them a certain amount of time so that they would have witnesses who would swear an oath that they had seen what they'd seen. Um, they would ask for the contracts that had been drawn up. If it was, a, for example, an inheritance issue, they would ask for the copy of the will. They really had a, a really remarkable desire for justice to prevail. So history from the bottom up, do you, are, are you going to talk about the uh, Lu, Lunana? I could. Yeah, um, Lunana, yes, he's lovely. Um, um, Lunana is, uh, actually, he's from the, the previous period, but that's fine. No, sorry. Um, it's, I, I want to bring him up anyway, because we were just talking about yes. courts and slaves and things. Yes, no, Lunana was a slave. Um, we don't know how he became enslaved, but his his owner died, and there's a court case that records very briefly, but you can see so much there. But what happened? Because Lunana escaped, um, he ran away to a land called Anshan, which was a five-week journey from his home in Uma. 
uh, he seems to have let people believe that he had died and thought he was safe. Um, and then he was discovered by uh, a man who confusingly was named Gudea, but he was not the King Gudea, who's quite well known. Um, he was brought back to Uma and taken to court. And uh, in court, um, the man who captured him was given a 10 shekel reward, which was a huge reward. And poor Lunana ended up back enslaved to the son of his previous owner. But there is so much there that's so fascinating because we can look at the whole system that existed for recovering escaped slaves. The, there were uh, fugitive slave cap catchers who would go out searching for slaves who'd run away and they were provided with food and um, supplies uh, by either the temple or the palace. Uh, there was the point of traveling and, and the fact that he managed to make this five week journey without being found. Uh, there's the, the fact that sl slaves were completely indistinguishable from the population, except that they had a particular haircut. And if you could convince a barber to shave your head, there was what they called a hair lock, so some kind of lock of hair that was if you were a slave. So if you could convince a barber to shave off your hair lock, you could pass as, as um, just a regular you know, free member of society. And so there's all of these aspects to Lunana's life. And, and I, I just found him fascinating because it's such a tiny tablet, but it kind of like opens up this whole world. And then when he comes back, we know that fugitive slaves were put into prison and they didn't use prison for much. They, would, they didn't have long-term prison sentences, but a prison was a place where you were put for a kind of a holding period and before your trial. And uh, there was a goddess of, who watched over prisoners. And there's a wonderful um, hymn to her in which the, a prisoner describes what it was like to be in prison and how they desperately wanted freedom. And, um, and so one could imagine Lunana in this situation in prison, hoping, of course, that he would somehow be freed, but, but he wasn't. So you, you, you said this could end very precisely in what, 1594? 1595. Yeah, why, yeah, why so precisely? How, 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 um, what, 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 what brings this to an end? Death what happened was, <laughs> no, the um, Babylon, which had been dominating the uh, period from 1792 to 1595, um, from the beginning of Hammurabi's reign and to the end of his dynasty, uh, is, it, was, uh, it was attacked in 1595. Babylon was... Um, Death and destruction. Was, yes, it was... But it's such an odd one because it, archaeologically they haven't found it because Babylon, the, the water table has shifted. So the level of Babylon that would have had that destruction level is under the water table. So you can't excavate it. We know about it because the Hittites wrote about it. The Babylonians wrote about it. There's, there's references to this destruction of Babylon, but it's really unclear exactly what happened. Um, it used to be thought, and I, I actually wrote this in a previous book, that the Hittites marched down the Euphrates, conquered Babylon, marched back, and that was the end of Babylon. But it seems to be much more complicated than that, that there was already rebellion going on in Babylon, that there were various groups of people who were siding against the Babylonians, and the, the Hittites coming in was just the nail in the coffin, mm -hmm. that it wasn't. It was already a, um, a kingdom that was very compromised. So the last Babylon, we move on to this period, the late Bronze Age. Yes. Another another bad marketing, but whatever. Um, I know. You say that it is, in many ways, strikingly different from anything that had come before it. Yes, because it's in this period that you get the first really um, profoundly conscious 
international peace going on. I, that's a bad way of putting it. But the, the desire of five big empires to not be at war with one another, but to be at peace with one another, and to have treaties, of peace treaties, to have diplomacy, regular uh, ambassadors traveling back and forth between their courts, and to be intermarried with one another so that they would marry one another's daughters, these kings. And for about 200 years, although there were some battles during that time period and some periods that were less peaceful than others, it was dominated by a peaceful coexistence. And who are these empires? You said five empires? Okay, yeah. Okay, so Babylonia is one of them. Babylonia, yeah. Um, a kingdom called Mitanni, which yeah. is... Mysterious. Syria. Little it's, known. It's most, yes, because we don't have the capital city. Okay. Um, but... Um, but yes, most of what is now Syria and northern Iraq was in Mitanni. Then there was Hatti, which is the Hittite mm -hmm. empire. Um, and Egypt mm -hmm. was another empire. And then there was actually a fifth one, which isn't an empire. And that's the island of Cyprus, okay. because um, Cyprus had copper and was a very rich place because of the copper. Now, when Mitanni collapsed, it was replaced in this system as the fifth power by Assyria, which had been subject to Mitanni but Assyria had its own independence at that point. But there was always these five great powers and they were at peace with one another. And I, I wrote an entire uh, half of a book about this. It's just, I think it's a fascinating, not this book, my previous book, Brotherhood of Kings, but it is so interesting how good they were at this once they developed the system and how much they wanted it to, to succeed. So my impression was, and this is based probably before your book on uh, youthful visits to the University of Pennsylvania Museum, uh, is yeah. that basically the Assyrians did everything short of eating people and maybe would have done that on a bet. Oh, those are the later Assyrians. Later Assyrians. And, and I would also beg to differ a little bit. But um, I, I was eight, but it was... The, I know, I understand. They, they, and they have tablets saying, you know, that I, I grind my bones of my enemies beneath right, my right. feet and things like that. Right. Terrifying. I think what we want to do is to keep separate the kings from the people. Got it. Um in that period, but we'll come to them later. But this is the Middle Assyrian period. And the Middle Assyrian period, they are not yet that power. They don't know that that's coming in the future, as one never that's does. Right. You know, they, as far as they were concerned, they were one of these five powers and they were the newcomers on the block. The, the Assyrians at this point, were not, they hadn't been one of the great powers until Mitanni collapsed. And then they became a great power. And you can actually see the Assyrian king kind of worming his way into this brotherhood. They called themselves brothers that the brotherhood of these great kings, because initially he wrote to the Egyptian king and he didn't call himself a brother. He didn't call himself a great king. He's just sort of trying to get into the club. <laughs> and, the, and the Babylonian king wrote to the Egyptian king and said, what, what is this with the Assyrians writing to you? They don't belong here. You know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And then later, once Mitanni was gone, then Assyria becomes one of the great powers and they got, get to call the, the pharaoh brother and so forth. And what I, an example I gave in the book from this period was there's a Babylonian king named Bonaboriash II, and he had lots of daughters, and three of his daughters married three of these great kings. And so you can look at the system through these women who were um, had varying degrees of power. So the woman who married the Egyptian king, she was one of just an enormous number of women that the Egyptian king married. She doesn't seem to have made an impression at all. The woman who married the Hittite king becomes great queen. She's very powerful. She's also hated. And the woman who married the king of Elam becomes the mother of the next king. So she's a very important figure and not hated. And she's, she's apparently loved in, in Elam. And so you, the, these three sisters 
then have this very different experience of what this international world looked like from their their perspective. What um, what's the view from the bottom up? Well, I did from the bottom up is interesting when this starts to collapse. The system began to collapse at the end of the 13th century BC, and um, there's a city called Amar that's been excavated. It's uh, in Syria on the Euphrates. And in Amar, they found lots of tablets that were dated to what they called the year of famine and distress or um, distress and war. You know, there's this term distress in many of the years. And my um, example from that is that there was a family, a poor family, a woman named Kue and her husband Zadama. And we know about them because a number of contracts were drawn up concerning them. They had initially a baby. And then very soon after that, they had twins. Um, so the family of three small children, very, very poor. And then for some reason, we don't know why, Zadama left, the husband left. And so this woman has three children. She's desperately poor. And we have a, a document in which she decided to give up her daughter, the older, who's still only a toddler. Um, and she describes her selling her to another woman to become that woman's daughter. So it's not a slave sale as far as one can see because it's not in the terms of a slave sale it seems to be literally that she is giving her daughter up for an adoption that is a purchase as well <laughs> do you see mm -hmm. um that, that she's getting money for her daughter that falls through she doesn't get the money from the woman the daughter comes back or perhaps never left and the woman the husband comes back she gets pregnant again she now has four toddlers i mean just four tiny three toddlers and a baby and um the couple decided to sell all four of the children into slavery. And uh, there's a just absolutely heartbreaking image uh, of, um, of this in the form of three little clay objects that look like tablets, except that they are footprints of the children. So each child pressed his or her little foot into a piece of clay and then they treated it as if it was a contract. They wrote that this, you know, was for the purchase of this child and this is how much was paid for them and and they're sealed just like a oh sorry, just like a contract would be. Anyway, these these footprints were found and I feel like that is such a um a, a poignant image of just how hard life was that this family had to sell their four children. And to see their, their footprints is just so heartbreaking because you realize that that is a child's life, which is going to be just completely devastating. Where are those preserved? They're in the Aleppo Museum okay. in Syria. and um, Which is not currently open for visitors. No, it isn't. But there are some beautiful photos of them that are available. I, I couldn't actually get access to a photo from my book, so I did a drawing of them. Um, mm. But I, I really wanted that image in the book because... Um, because it does make it so human when you see something like that and you can imagine that little child. And the fourth child didn't do a footprint because she was just too young. She was um, still nursing. So they, they presumably um, let her stay with her mother until she was weaned and then the, the, she was taken. Well, let's conclude now with the first millennium. You yes. take it all the way to Alexander the Great. I do. But, uh, but um, uh, Barely. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting that you chose that rather than Persia. Since I, I would have thought, but but so why did you decide to end with Alexander rather than with with Persia? Because afterwards the Babylon doesn't come back, or they don't come back as their own thing. I guess. Would be well, there's there's lots of arguments that can be made for actually continuing all the way through the first century CE, mm -hmm. because they were still using cuneiform. And my just 
a little tiny bit. My my sort of thought with the book is that it's bounded by cuneiform, that they started using cuneiform at the beginning of cities, and they basically ended using cuneiform for the most part by the time of Alexander. It was still, there were still some places in which cuneiform was being used a little bit, but it was not in any way the, the, the main um, script. The reason I didn't start with are they, are they, I mean, are they using cuneiform, sorry, but are they using cuneiform like, for everything, even under the Persians, they come to Alexander and then it comes, bam, like, you know, a garbage truck running into a, you know, a asteroid or something like that. I mean, is it, is it? Is it they did use cuneiform to start with in Persian times, at least in Mesopotamia. Okay. Um, and they switched to Aramaic. Yes. Well, Aramaic was already being spoken, even in the Neo-Assyrian period in the, you know, eighth century, they were still, they were speaking Aramaic a lot in Mesopotamia, but they were still writing in cuneiform, in Akkadian. Um, and the Persians adopted that to start with, and then they switched to entirely Aramaic, at which point there's much less, for administration, there's much less administrative materials in uh, cuneiform. And because Aramaic was written on papyrus or on um, leather, it doesn't survive. So that it means that all those documents that we would, they were still being written, we just don't have because they're not in a, in a form that they survive in. And so I didn't start with Cyrus the Great conquering Babylon. Because if you look at the documents, you can barely see that he arrived. I mean, when you're looking at, at daily life, um, it goes from the year of Nabonidus to the first year of Cyrus without a break. You don't see a big break. Culture, life stayed the same. And it was only gradually through Persian times, through Achaemen Achaemenid times, that, um, that things began to change. And... And even 323 is I, it's sort of a bit arbitrary because I don't really go into Alexander in the book because he's not in the same tradition. The book was already very long. And I had this thought that if I'm going to go into all that, it's just going to get longer. And so I, I decided not to really do much in the fourth century. Sure. So the, the transition from late, this late Bronze Age to the first millennium, that's, that's traumatic. Yeah. There's a, a long period that's sometimes called a Dark Age, which sounds sort of... Um, as though it's a bad time. It's not at all. That's not, not what they're saying. They're simply saying it's dark because we don't know much about it. It's dark in the sense of your, your image of that warehouse with the spotlights. It, it's dark in that way. In the, there's just very, very little documentation. Um, and that ends, the Dark Age ends in the ninth century with the beginning of the Assyrian Empire. And so you go from a period where there was the end of those big five peaceful empires, those collapse. There's a lot of small kingdoms um, in that period from uh, 1000 to, well, 1100 maybe to, to 911-ish. Um, and one of those kingdoms, of course, was Israel, which I don't really cover in the book because they didn't use cuneiform. I certainly talk about Israel when they come in contact with the cuneiform regions of the world, but I don't go into much detail at all about biblical history. Two reasons. One is I'm not a biblical scholar. And the other is there is a lot written on biblical history. And one of the points of writing this book was to, to expose people to fields that aren't very familiar. And so, um, so I, I defer to biblical scholars there. But yes, you get this, again, a very different era because the Neo-Assyrian Empire was a classic empire. They wanted to take over the world in a way that the previous empires really hadn't. There had been empires before in Mesopotamia, but they hadn't been as aggressively imperialistic, as aggressively uh, sort of this image of this one central... There, there, there definitely seems to be, not to talk like a modern historian, but there seems to almost be an ideology of conquest and and of, of, of 
yeah there's a there's a, there seems to be something behind all this that is 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 qualitatively and obviously in the end quantitatively in terms of territory taken different than any previous empire that's come before yeah i think it's partly because the assyrians by this time were very militarily based that the the military was at the heart of everything so any position you had in the assyrian government you had a military position as well you might be the king's cupbearer but you were also a general the queen even had her own troops even she probably didn't lead them in battle herself but there were the queen's troops there was this sort of sense that part of what defined you as a leader was military leadership and that resulted in or perhaps it's hard to say cause and effect but it meant that the Assyrian kings wanted a campaign every year, or, or it, when the, they would even structure their annals, the, the listing of what they did each year with where they campaigned and what their victories were. And that was different. That was not what it was like previously in Mesopotamia. You say that, I mean, they do have very bad press, the Neo-Assyrians, as you, your description of you know, grinding up their bones of their enemies. The, the kings were, in the descriptions of their own reigns, yeah, they were brutal. I mean, they describe beheadings and flayings and putting people on, impaling them on posts. The average Assyrian was nothing like that. You know, I mean, as with any culture, when you look at the, the your top down versus bottom up, um, the top down was, was brutal. Bottom up, the people living under the Assyrian empire were people, you know, they weren't, um, they were getting along with their lives as best they could. I think one of the things that really is striking about this era is the amount of deportation that took place. So people being conquered and then moved somewhere else. So that um, you get, there's an estimate that 4.5 million people may have been deported over the course of the Assyrian Empire. And that's a huge number when you consider that the population of that region was much, much smaller then than it is now. So vast numbers of people being What's moved. the reason for that? Do we have any idea? That this, I mean, um, if Joseph Stalin was, was, was here, he would say, well, that's the elemental means of you know, social control over a society. Uh, to I, I think that's a big bit part of it. Yeah, I think that is. I think part of it was you have a region that's rebelling. And if you move those people away from the place that they're, where they're rebelling, you're taking them away from their ancestors, their allies, all of the things. Their putting them in a, Their gods, yeah. Um, and you're putting them in a place where they are just going to have to try and make a living. You, they gave them land. I mean, it wasn't that they were trying to kill them all. They, they wanted them to be paying taxes but they would put them in a place where the land needed to be worked. And if you were going to live there, you had to focus on just keeping your family alive. I'm sure that was part of it. Um, it was also, there were various reasons have been proposed for these deportations, but it was a way to kind of like undermine rebellion, undermine um, possible revolts. It didn't stop them, but it was an attempt. <laughs> so the, the Neo-Babylonians uh, who are a long way from being the, old Babylonians, but they, right. they, 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 they named themselves after that previous, that previous... We called them Neo-Babylonians. Um, Babylon had been occupied this whole time. Babylon was a major city from the time of Hammurabi onwards, so it was a very important place. What happened with the Neo-Babylonian period is that Babylon becomes, once again, the heart of an empire. So when the Neo-Assyrian Empire collapsed, was conquered, it was conquered by the Babylonians with the help of the Medes. The Medes were in what is now Iran. And the Babylonians took over a big chunk of what had been the Neo-Assyrian Empire. They ruled it from Babylon, so we call it the Neo-Babylonian period. So do they, they, they adopt many of the practices of the Assyrians, I would like deportations and things. Yes. That, that's right? Yeah. They did. They adopted some of them. 
But what's so interesting is that the Babylonian kings, the Neo-Babylonian kings, did not present themselves as brutal, you know, crushing the enemy people. They barely mentioned any military campaigns. They, that was not what they emphasized. In their inscriptions, they were kind, they were, you know, providing for their people, they were shepherds, very much in the mold of Hammurabi and the kings of his period, who had been, you know, 1,200 years earlier. So this is, if you think about it, it's like as if someone now was saying, I'm just like Charlemagne. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> such a long time ago. Yeah. But, um, but that was what, they would even use the old-fashioned script. They would, <sighs> they're very much sort of hearkening back to this era that they saw as their a golden age. Yeah, a golden age from Babylon. Yeah. And, and not emphasizing, even though they did deport, and of course the famous, uh, most famous example of this is, is the deportation of um, the population of Jerusalem yeah. to Babylon. Of um, historical importance. <laughs> absolutely. But it's not something the Babylonians emphasized. They were, right. they were, deportation happened, but they didn't make a big deal about it. And they, they liked to think of themselves. I say themselves. There's only really two major, three major kings of the Neo-Babylonian period. Um, the most important one being Nebuchadnezzar II, who ruled through most of that time period. And he mm -hmm. is kind of the one person so, we think of. And, and again, it's a rather, it's a rather short by, yeah. By the standards of the certainly by the standards of the Near East, a rather short period. So let's, yes. let's let's work. We're running way over, but let's do it. I'm let's do, let's do. That's okay. It's not your fault. So I'm uh, I'm running the ship, and so I'm, you know, this is how I'm steering it. So this let's do one last thing. Uh, view from the bottom up. For the Neo Babylonian period, I I wanted to um, look at going back to beer because we started with beer. So. Um, in the last sort of section, I have this couple whose name are Nabu Utiri and his wife um, Mizatu, and they were brewers, and they were they owned a brewery, um, set up a brewery in Babylon. They sold beer, and we know a lot about them because a lot of their contracts survive. But interestingly, they were enslaved. They were um, owned by a man named Iti Marduk Balatu, and he set them up with their business. They were very successful. They had a lot of um, success in their beer selling operation. And they were, uh, they paid one sixth of their profits to the uh, slave owner, but the rest they got to keep, they rented their own house. Um, so they had a surprising amount of autonomy, uh, given that they were owned by someone else. Uh, but I think the, the sort of theme of beer coming through the book, um, from uh, it's not. I don't actually come back to beer all that often. I just thought it was it was interesting to look at the um, the the fact that it was still so important to the economy and uh, a source of livelihood for people, and that one gets the sense of what the the, the lives were like of uh, this couple who were um, doing quite well for themselves given their difficult situation. So I just want to conclude something I had observed to you in the email. Um, I'm reading this. I'm thinking. At a moment, it felt like it felt like a moment of clarity. Hopefully, it wasn't false clarity. That this isn't just the foundations; this is the dirt beneath the foundation. That's what I'm reading about. Um, all the stuff that you read. Uh, well, I, I've read this undergraduate that you know, I've taught. If I'm teaching, say, uh, intellectual history, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, all the social contract people. Now we know on one level that they're wrong, but it's still we always teach. I always have to teach them. I always have to teach them if they're absolutely right. But here I am reading your history book. I mean, this is the state of nature, which I knew doesn't really exist. This is as closest that I can get to the state of nature, this attempt to create the foundation beneath the foundation. 
And when I reach the the mud, the dirt beneath the foundation, what do I find? Um, it's all the stuff that I mentioned in the intro. It's cities. It's farms. It's people in court. It's people making oaths, swearing. Right. <laughs> it's it's kings and rulers. It's council of advisors. It's all the stuff. It's all the water. It's like water for a fish. <laughs> I could I couldn't I wouldn't know what a society was like if none of those things existed. Yeah? I wouldn't know where I was. Yeah. And so here I you know if 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 we didn't believe if we weren't interested in change over time we shouldn't be historians. Mm. So there's there's actually a lot of change over time. We've hopefully we've we've talked about this. Empires rise and fall. But there are these continuities, nuclear families too for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and getting right with the higher power. All those things are just, yeah, they are our water. You know, it is really interesting because it, it's often, my students will often say this, that they expected this to be, you know, taking a class on this, they expected it to be all about, you know, people acting in very vicious and violent ways to one another before humans discovered human rights and so forth. Yeah, right. and, and it's true, they didn't have any concept of human rights the way that it's defined today. But there is this, remarkable familiarity that we have with it they did care about fairness and justice they did um they were civil to one another there was there were bad things too that we still have there was a massive distinction between rich and poor you know that is something that was true then it's true now um they did have slavery um which of course we don't have today but um well, we, the, de- the debt slavery that you're the debt slavery that you're describing exists in quite a few places no, it's true. That's true. It's so there is um, for for good and bad. There is there are a number of things that are very familiar. I think what inspires me, though, in terms of looking at them, uh, is that there is so much that is reminds one of one shared humanity. You know, across all of these thousands of years, and that there has always been also a, a really good side to humanity too. That it's it there there isn't. It's not as though somehow at our core we were just horrible people and that we've somehow grumbled, you know, clawed our way out of that. It hasn't been progress particularly. There have been times when people were, were, were doing really well and there were times when they weren't doing well. And, and there were, you know, you, right at the beginning of civilization, you have women in positions of power um, that they lost you know, and then they gained them back again. So I think this, this image people have of it sort of being a, a story of progress from a terrible beginning to this the modern period it's just not true i mean you see waves of 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 different um types of behavior at different times and yet right at the beginning of cities they wanted to get it right you know they wanted to live civilly they they didn't there's very little random violence there's violence in warfare but there's very little random violence in, in this period my guest today has been amanda padani she is author of weavers scribes and kings a new history of the ancient Near East. Amanda, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.